The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We'll be in Amos chapter 7 this morning. So this is our book that we are preaching through. The Bible um, that uh, is before many of us this morning is a big book. It's split into two main parts, right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and we're in the Old Testament. It's the story of God's redemption pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in the book of Amos. It's called the book of Amos because a prophet named Amos is the one who gave us all this content as he was called by God to go and speak a message to the people of God. We are in Amos chapter 7, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to ask that you would stand to your feet so we can honor the reading of the Word of God. Again, we're not just doing this because it's just sort of a religious-y sort of thing to do. What we want to do is uh, honor God not only with our lips but with our actions, and this is just one way that we can do that, okay? I love what our brother Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, that these prophets were speaking as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is the Spirit of God speaking to the people of God, starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is the reading of God's word. You guys can be seated. Well, this morning we have before us uh, an interesting section here, um, some visions that were given to the prophet Amos, okay? Our sermon title this morning is uh, sort of two phrases I'm laying on top of us. Uh, sovereign Lord pleading prayer. Sovereign Lord pleading prayer. And the main idea helps support this sermon title. Main idea being that we have a sovereign Lord who answers pleading prayer. You're going to see Amos bring pleading prayer before a sovereign Lord, and you're going to see how a sovereign Lord 
interacts with the prayers, the pleading prayers of his peoples. In Christ, I think it's important for us to remember that one of our gospel identities is that of being a follower. It's the very thing we just prayed for. And being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is someone who gives themselves over to word and to prayer so that as they submit themselves to these things, their heart is conformed to the Lord. And what you're going to see before us and what my challenge is maybe to tune your ears to this, that specific idea of being a, a follower of King Jesus and what that means to draw close to him in prayer, pay attention to the prayer aspect that is laid before us in the text this morning as Amos prays and pleads on the behalf of a people who are running headlong toward destruction. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to hit, hit pause. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would come during this time of preaching and that our hearts would be pierced by the Word of God and that we would leave here changed today, okay? So let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would do what you said you delight to do, which is be a good father who delights to give the gift of the Spirit. So I'm asking now, I'm pleading on behalf of your fatherliness, your good fatherliness, to give this good gift now. That the Spirit would come and empower the preaching of these words spoken by Amos that we would have hearts pierced by the words we are soon to hear this morning, that a holy hush would fall on us this morning as our hearts and our minds are tuned to the things that are being spoken to us by the God who right now is living, ruling, and reigning in righteousness, justice, power, and truth. Holy Spirit, turn our eyes to see our need, our desperate, desperate need for King Jesus. It's in the name of Christ the King I pray these things. Amen. Well, over the course of our time in the book of Amos, we have said this. This book can be broken up into three main sections, okay? The first section was in chapters 1 and 2, where Amos came with a word from God to the nations, calling the nations to see that they are called to live their lives in line with the word of God with the living God. But that has not happened, and so Amos was called to speak to them, to remind them of what it looks like to live in right relationship with their creator. Then we round it into the second part of the book of Amos, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. And what we said was this sort of, was sort of a compendium, five specific sermons that Amos was called to preach, not to the nations, but specifically to the people of God. If you remember, three sermons started with hear this word. The people needed to hear a direct word from God spoken to them. And then his last two sermons were sermons that began with the word woe. Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. And then just last week, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And now with rounding into chapter 7, we're rounding into the third section. The sermons are done. And what you're going to notice is that there are five visions that Amos received that are going to help concretize and further clarify his message, visions that he received and that he is going to deliver to the people of God again as an invitation to see that if they keep running 
away from God in unrepentant rebellion to their creator, there is a disaster that is waiting for them, an eternal disaster ultimately. And he is inviting them, challenging, calling them to repent and turn to the Lord their God. Because these people were on the brink of receiving just judgment for sin, the need of the moment was twofold. Someone who would step into the breach and speak the truth to these people out of love for God. So we needed someone who was going to step into the gap and say, I will not yield and water down and soften the message that the Lord God has for you, even though it's going to be a hard message. Out of my love for God, I will not soften the message, but that same person needed to be somebody who could also plead in prayer out of love for those souls. There's a lot of people who like to step into the gap and just come with a hammer and try to wield truths in such a way that it sort of weaponizes them. There are some people who, out of love for souls, want to water down the truth. And they want to speak comforting lies instead of hard truths. And what Amos has before us is actually the confluence of these two things. Out of love for God, he is going to continue to reveal and show hard truths that these people need to hear. But what we're going to see this morning is that it was fully encompassed by a love and a compassion for the souls of these people to whom he was called to minister. And we see that in the way he pleads on their behalf in prayer. So what does this prophet have to say to us this morning? What are these words here? Admittedly, these are sort of some, some um, funky visions here that he received. So the question is, well, what does this mean for us this morning? And I think we can begin to get at that answer by asking ourselves two questions. And the first question is this, who pulls the strings? Who pulls the strings? Verses one through six, point number one, Question number one that'll help us see what do these words from this prophet mean for us this morning? And we can be get, get there by asking the question, who pulls the strings? And asking this question, who pulls the strings, we're ultimately asking the question, who's in charge of all this? Who's in charge? In the end, who's the one ultimately calling the shots around here? The clear answer, when you look at the vision of locusts and you look at the vision of fire that is laid before Amos, the answer is the sovereign Lord. He is the one who is pulling the strings. He's the one who's in charge calling the shots. At work in creation and sovereign over the cosmos, he is the one who is Lord of everything. You see this in verse 1. Amos says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was the one that was forming the locusts that were going to be sent when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Skip down to verse 4. When he says, this is what the Lord God showed me, behold, behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire as it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Much like what Egypt experienced, if you remember your Old Testament stories, when the Lord sent a plague of locusts upon that land, Amos now sees a vision that Israel is going to receive the same kind of judgment that came to Egypt. What was meant for them is now going to come to them. They're going to suffer a similar fate. And because the swarming locusts would descend after the first crop had been gathered and before the second crop had a chance to fully grow, what Amos sees in this vision is something that spells out complete and absolute disaster for the people of God. 
The fully encompassing judgment that is going to come to the people of God is further emphasized by that second vision of fire, where there's this fire that is going to come and devour the deep, says Amos. A fire so fully encompassing that it's going to eat up the land, he says. In preaching these visions, Amos is driving home the fact that God is very active in the world that he created, making use of the created order to actually carry out his purposes in this world. It was he who was forming the locusts for judgment. It was he who was calling for a judgment by fire. In a nutshell, Amos helps us to behold this one inescapable truth, that at the helm of history stands a sovereign Lord. He's the one who is at the helm of history. He's the one steering and guiding all things for his glory. You go into the Psalms, you see this tattooed all over the Psalms. One in particular, Psalm 135 says that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. In his interactions with this sovereign Lord, if you go into the book of Daniel, you'll meet a character named King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this inescapable truth the hard way that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to this living God, what have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar came to realize ain't nobody got that right to challenge the sovereign Lord on that front. In other words, the one being in existence who has the sole right to say, I can and I will orchestrate all things for the glory of my name is the sovereign Lord that we see in full-blown operation in these first two visions of locusts and fire. He has the right to set the standard according to his perfect righteousness. He alone marks out what is true according to his holiness. And what Amos sees and clearly understands in these first two visions is that according to these standards, judgment for sin was going to come to the people of God. But notice that we also see something else in these first two visions. We see this, a picture of pleading prayer. So if the Lord, the sovereign Lord, is at the helm of history, steering all things so that all will roll back to him, through his praise, honor, glory, and grace, what we also see in these visions is a picture of a man named Amos giving himself fully and completely to pleading prayer. So in the first vision, upon seeing the destruction of the locust, looks at what, look at how Amos responds to that in verse 2. He says, oh, Lord God. In your Bibles, when you see the word Lord God together and the word God is all in caps, some of your translations might tease that out for you if you've got the New International Version. It says this, oh, sovereign Lord. When you see Lord God like that in your scriptures, it's tapping into the idea that Yahweh is the sovereign one. 
So you could see this, that upon saying, upon seeing the vision that was given to Amos, what it does is it drives Amos in verse 2 to say, Sovereign Lord, I know you're sovereign, but what I'm going to do right now is plead in prayer to the Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, please forgive the people that are about to be on the receiving end of this devouring plague. Jacob, how can he stand? He's so small. Then you roll down into verse 5 where you see him plead in prayer yet again in response to the vision of God calling for a judgment by fire. He says, O Lord God, sovereign Lord, notice it's no longer please forgive, it's now please. Would you cease? Cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Saints, it is difficult, I think, to imagine the depth of, of the devastation that Amos witnessed in these two visions. But what is clear is that Amos was distraught at the destruction he saw coming for these people. Because of the nature of Amos' ministry, remember, so far, I said this maybe back towards the, uh, before the Christmas break and stuff, Amos was called to have the burden of speaking to a people whose hearts were hard, extremely hard, like concrete hard, steeped in the hardness of sin. And they needed to have their hearts shaken awake by a prophet who was willing to come and speak a hard truth that if you continue to walk the path that you are on, judgment will come for you. And so the bulk of the book of Amos is a book of judgment. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, judgment. The last five verses of chapter 9, redemption. He's getting there. Bear with me. All right, guys, the picture of redemption is coming. But he was called to preach this, this message of judgment because God's the heart of the people who were supposed to be walking righteously, justly before their God of righteousness and justice. It was just so hard. It was so wayward. And if we're not careful, we might imagine Amos to be a prophet who as he's saying these things and he's speaking these messages of judgment, like he's just salivating, just waiting to be able to come and chomp down and just deliver another hard, hard hard-handed message of judgment to come. But through these two simple and yet profound prayers that we have right before us, I would argue they absolutely prove that that is not true concerning the heart of Amos. Judgment did not stoke the fires of Amos' delight. His message wasn't spoken with an edge of menace. Good, good riddance to these people who deserve these sorts of things because of their disobedience. No, instead, what he saw led him to plead in prayer. Sovereign Lord, please forgive. Sovereign Lord, please cease. It led him to step into the gap and to see a people who were on the wide path leading to destruction and they were happily doing so and they weren't even tuned in enough to the destruction that was going to come for their souls to where they 
even cared to plead on their own behalf. And so what he says is, listen, I'm going to take up that mantle. I'm going to take it up. They don't even know what they need, but I know what they need. And I'm going to start praying that they will not receive what is just and due to them. Now, it might surprise you that Amos prayed in this way. Locusts are coming. God forgive them. That's sort of a weird prayer there in that moment. You'd think he'd see locusts coming and he'd say, God, stop the locusts. But he doesn't. He says, please forgive them. But this is no slip of the tongue on Amos's part. Listen, what Amos knows is that the real problem that is facing the people is not fire and locusts. That is not the real problem. The real problem is sin in the heart of a people who love sin more than they love God. Full of self-assurance, the nation thinks they can stand on their own. Complacent in their pride, they see themselves as not small. And as a result, they are blind to the destruction that is coming their way. Therefore, Amos pleads. He pleads. He pleads for God's covenant mercy. He pleads for free grace. He knows that Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious. He knows Yahweh is slow to anger. He knows Yahweh is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he prays according to what he knows to be true about God. He prays for God to forgive. He prays for God to save the people, not based upon Israel's repentance. He's not saying, God, look how good they are. Don't be so harsh. Israel and their unrepentance has no care for the things of God. But that does not prevent this man of God from saying, well, forget them. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. No, his heart is breaking for the unrepentant people, and it compels him to plead, God, would you bring grace and mercy for your glory and for your name's sake to these people? In other words, the wholehearted embrace of sin among the people compelled pleading prayer in Amos, he was a man of compassion who cared about the people to whom the Lord placed around him. Love for God drove him to speak the truth, but also love for souls led him to plead in prayer for their forgiveness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the basic Christian response for you and me that are here in Christ this morning is for us to do the exact same thing. It's for us to do the exact same thing. Just like Amos, we are called to stand in the breach. Just like Amos, we are called to plead in prayer for those who are heading for God's fiery judgment. What is the vision of the second vision there? Verses 4, 5, and 6. Behold, the Lord God is calling for fiery judgment. It was going to devour the great deep. It was going to eat up the land. The people were going to be decimated. And what the vision of fiery judgment drove Amos to do was say, Lord, forgive, Lord, cease, Lord, in your grace, please bring it about, draw people to yourself, use me, use others, so that people will not have to receive the fiery judgment that is just and due for their sins. And just like Amos, we are called to do the same. In Christ, one of our gospel identities is that of a follower, someone who desires to become like Jesus in word and prayer. And when our prayers grow from mere thankfulness for food and general blessings for health into a burden that pleads in prayer for the salvation of others, in this we reflect the heart of Christ. So ask yourself this question. 
wrestle with this question. What is the burden of my prayers? What's the burden of my prayers? When I find myself praying and someone would say, like, what is the burden on your heart, generally speaking, when you cobble together, like, your life of prayer, what is the burden that is on your heart? I dare say for most of us as followers of Christ, it's not an Amos-like burden. Ask, do I have a similar love for my neighbor as Amos had for Israel? You see, Amos was a pleader for the souls of men. So where are the modern-day Amoses in our world? Where are the pleaders? Where are the kneeling Christians who are willing to labor and pleading prayer for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth? Where are the pleaders? Are we a pleading church? Am I a pleading Christian? Someone whose heart is churning with compassion for the lost souls of those that are around me, knowing that if they continue on the path they are on, they too will meet a fiery judgment to come. And that does not sit well with me. And so what I'm going to do is bend my heart in compassionate, truth-speaking, pleading prayer. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter in the New Testament that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And such was the case with Amos when he prayed on Israel's behalf. In response to his prayer, we see the God who relents. Did you notice that? He prays, God relents. You see that in verses 3, verse 6. Verse 3, prayer, or verse 2, prayer, O Lord, God, please forgive Verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. And then verse 6, the Lord relented concerning this, this also shall not be, said the Lord God. When the two streams of a sovereign Lord, a truth in the Scriptures, a Lord who is sovereign, we see it all over Scripture, we also see another stream that God's people are called to be pleaders in prayer. When these two streams come together, it can really throw many of us for a loop. We often hear this tension, the tension of these two thoughts as they come together, sovereign Lord, us pleading in prayer, posed in the question, well, if God is sovereign, why in the world should I pray? Right? If he's sovereign and he knows what's going to happen, if he knows what's going to go on, like why should I, why should I plead in prayer? What's the point of that? The implication of this question is that to have a sovereign Lord who does all that he pleases defeats the purpose of prayer. The implication is that in his sovereignty, God has already set what he wants to do, so what use is my prayer? But what Amos models for us in these first two visions is the exact opposite of that way of thinking. Instead of asking if God is sovereign, why in the world should I pray? Amos would ask if God is not sovereign, why in the world would you even spend time in prayer? Or if you want to put it in a positive statement, because God is sovereign, I pray. Because I'm praying to the Lord who can get things done. This is why I posed the question for this point, who pulls the strings. Who's pulling the strings in all of this? If we're not careful, we might be tempted to say, well, I think it's Amos. After all, God gave a vision, Amos prayed, God relented. 
It looks like Amos' prayers caused God to change his mind, but we need to remember that prayers are not bribes. We don't bribe God with our prayers. Amos is just simply reminding us that it is the sovereign Lord who is answering his prayers. He is sovereign. We are not. Our lives move and bend in conformity to his will. It's not the other way around. But listen, but it's not as though prayer is a waste. Obviously, prayer is not a waste, as Amos demonstrates for us in these first two visions. The response of the Lord, relenting, is the response of God to Amos' prayers. So what we have before us in these first two visions is the wonderful mystery of prayer. The wonderful mystery of prayer where in some mysterious way, God's, the Lord God's, the sovereign God's purposes are affected by the prayers of his people. In short, what Amos is showing us is that prayer changed something. Prayer actually changed something. And so I wonder, do you believe that prayer actually changes things? Do you, do you actually believe that when you pray, things will change? Or is prayer just sort of that thing you do before a meal because like that's what just grandma sort of, sort of always did? Is prayer that thing we do in the middle of the sermon because we don't quite know how to transition from Connor being done to me preaching so we might as well just kill 10 minutes and do a little thing called prayer? No, we pray in that moment because we were followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus know that when we bend our heart in line with the will of the sovereign Lord, not only does he delight to hear the prayers we ask, but he delights to give answers to those prayers. 1 John chapter 5. And so, do we believe that prayer changes things? As a church and as individuals, do we believe that when our prayers meld together with God's purposes, that prayer changes things? Or is prayer just a time filler? A thing we do to fulfill a religious duty, just so we can feel a little bit better about ourselves, you know? I mean, that's just what you're supposed to do in church, after all. Some guy's supposed to talk for a bit, and some guy's supposed to pray for a bit, and then we just go on, go on our merry way. Or are we pausing? and bending our knee before a sovereign Lord because we know we are absolutely dependent on him in prayer. Well, time's getting on, so let's move on to our second question. Second point, who sets the standard? That's the question. Verses 7 through 9, who sets the standard? It's the third vision. Just look at what Amos says, starting in verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord is standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. Plumb line was in his hand. The Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I, I see a plumb line. And then the Lord said, listen, Amos, you've got to know this about what I'm doing concerning my people. I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, and I will never again pass by them. If you're familiar with the world of carpentry, you'll know what a plumb line is. A plumb line is just simply a tool that's used to measure the straightness of an object, right? You guys all know what a plumb line is? String with a weight on the bottom. You just hold it, and then after gravity sort of, you know, wanes off, it's just hanging there. And what you know is that thing is straight, that thing is true. It's a good, right, not crooked measurement. It's a plumb line. And in this vision, Amos sees the Lord, the sovereign Lord, set a plumb line in the midst of his people. 
And the implication is that God is measuring his people against a true and right standard. And what that plumb line is revealing is what they refuse to see, namely that they are out of whack. They are not true. They are not straight. Now, they think they are because they're using the wrong standard. They're not using God's standard. All of us think we're doing phenomenal when we bring our own standard and measure our lives against our own standards. But the thing is, crooked people love to measure themselves against crooked standards. The problem comes when crooked people who have been made crooked by sin get measured against God's perfect, true, right, straight, holy, awesome standard. And that's exactly what the Lord God is doing to the people of Israel. From the moment of their redemption all the way back in the book of Exodus, God had set a clear standard for his people with the plumb line of his law, the plumb line of his word. But when measured against this plumb line of the law, the plumb line of the word, it was obvious God's people were out of plumb. They were no longer straight and true according to the standard. And when confronted with this vision of what is true about Israel in this moment, notice that two things are missing that were not there in the first two visions. What are the two things that are missing? No pleading prayer anymore on the behalf of the prophet and no relenting from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's going to come a day when a patient Lord, full of grace and mercy, that patience will run out. And the report card will come home and we'll all be measured against the true, straight, right, just, perfect standard of the living God. The vision of the plumb line makes failure official. For the Lord had passed by his people once back in Exodus chapter 12, right? Remember that whole thing, the Passover? It's a big deal in the life of Israel. He says that is not going to happen anymore. And as a result, chapter, verse 9 there, every institution is going to fall. High places, sanctuaries, and even the house of the king. So here's the question. We're rounding third. We're heading to home. I'm going to ask you to tune in here. This is crucial to these points. The question is this for us, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? It leaves us, friends, in desperate need of the sovereign Lord. That's where it leaves us. It leaves us in need of Jesus Christ. These visions, when you read them, they leave us in need. And they leave us specifically in need of King Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ. Listen. Left to yourselves, left to ourselves, you and I are like the Israel that we see in Amos in that third vision. When our lives are measured against the plumb line of God's law, what's revealed in your life and what's revealed in my life is that we are like sagging walls that are not plumb, not straight, not true, sagging crooked walls that deserve to be brought down. We are crooked with prideful self-righteousness. We are bent with smug self-pleasing. We are warped and deformed by sin that dwells within us. And for anyone in this sin-shaped distortion, the question is, what hope do I have of being found straight and true on that final day of judgment when I stand before the living God? What hope do I have of me 
being found perfect, straight, and true when I am measured against the plumb line of God's perfect standard? What hope do I have? And the question is, or the answer is, you have no hope in and of yourself. In and of yourself to stand before that perfect, straight, true, righteous, just God, crooked sinners will found, be found to be crooked, bent, distorted and warped by sin. But friends, listen, the good news for malformed, distorted sinners is that there is one who has measured straight and true against the plumb line of God's law and his name is Jesus Christ. When you measure Christ's life against God's perfect standard, he is the single one who measures up perfectly. And the invitation of Amos 7, the, imita- the invitation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is don't, don't go and stand before the Lord crooked and bent in sin and then receiving the just reward for, your, for that crookedness of sin. No, repent of your sin. Turn to Christ by faith. Look to him as your only hope of salvation. And then the promise of the scriptures is that you will be hidden in Christ, who is your God, in Christ, the perfect standard. So then on that final day, when you stand before the perfect, just, true, right, and God, and he says, why, crooked sinner, should I let you into my true and straight and perfect kingdom? We don't go, well, you know, I'm just a little bit out of whack, but not as out of whack as that guy over there, so I'm just not as messed up as that and so maybe I should be let in no 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 what we'll do is say I I shouldn't be let in I'm a crooked sinner I I don't deserve eternal life in your perfect kingdom but I am hidden in trusting in looking to in faith the one who was perfect and righteous and in my place condemned he stood and I'm just trusting in him I'm looking looking to him I'm hidden in him. And so then on that final day, when the perfect plumb line of God's law gets measured against us, who is it actually being measured against? Not us, but Christ in whom we are hidden. I feel like that's good news. Okay, all right, just making sure here, okay? Woo, I understand. The lights are off last week, this week. Maybe this section up here is a little bit more sleepier than normal there, okay? So when that final day of judgment comes, we're, we're, listen, we're about to do a response time here. And this is the question I'm begging you to think about. When that final day of judgment comes, how will you be measured? How will you be measured? Like a crooked wall that's out of line that must be brought down? Or will you be found safe, sound, straight, and true as one who's hidden in Christ by faith? I'm not trying to make it simplistic, but I'm trying to make it as simple as that. I think it's going to be that. Some of us are going to say, you know what, I'm going to continue to build my life crooked, not, not on the plumb line of Christ. And we're going to stand before God on that final day, and the plumb line is going to be laid against us, and we're going to be found that we are not straight, true, right, perfect, because we're trusting in ourselves. But some of us are going to have the plumb line laid against us because we recognized this side of heaven, man, I, God has made me to see bent, warped, distorted, malformed, sin has done this to me. I need, I need something other than myself. 
And so then we look to Christ who was crucified and resurrected as our only hope of salvation and in him we find ourselves hidden. Wrestle with that question, please. When the final day of judgment comes, how will you be measured? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being the one. Perfect in every possible way. Righteous in every possible way. Obedient to the perfect standard of God's law in every possible way. Thank you for making it possible for sinners such as us to be able to know what it means to be hidden in you by faith, to look to you and say, Jesus, I need to be saved. So, Father, help us to respond now in obedience to what it looks like, to what you're calling us to. Help us to wrestle with these questions. So then as we leave here today, we would leave as people being changed and people who are changed so that the world might see a unique set of people, not holier-than-thou people, but a unique set of people who could say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Once I was crooked, but now I am straight, all because of Christ. Lord, we're asking you to do these things for your name and for your glory. Amen.